1986, Watchmen was created by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons. In 2019, Watchmen was created by TV showrunner Damon Lindelof. Watchmen was a comic, a graphic novel, exploring several ideologies and their logical endpoints, exploring free will, determinism and the construct of time, exploring the ethics of vigilantism, exploring the sexual psychology behind people who would wear crazy outfits and call themselves superheroes, exploring institutions and culture and politics and the nature of society. Watchmen is a TV show, a sequel of sorts to the comic set decades later. It examines the idea of appropriation, taking something and subverting it beyond the intentions of its creators, as well as the ethics of being anonymous, the toxicity of nostalgia, the legacy of racism, questions of brutality and escalation between individuals and institutions, between citizens and the police, and the limitations of cure-all gestures for societal problems. Watchmen the comic ruthlessly deconstructed the idea of superheroes and heroes in general, icons of power, strength and personal responsibility that deem themselves fit to be Watchmen, those that watch over others and impose their will upon people's lives, whether they do that dressing up as an owl or as president of America. Regarding the comic, Linda Lux's viewers don't need to have read it to watch the show, but that, of course, it's enriching to the experience, and that hopefully the show encourages people to go back and read it. Our version of Watchmen, if it becomes a gateway drug for them to go buy the original 12 issues that are now packaged as a graphic novel and read it, it is one of the greatest things ever written and illustrated, in my humble opinion. Both Watchmen's are set in an alternate history where, in 1938, some odd people, ordinary people, nothing special or superhuman about them, started dressing up in strange costumes and fighting crime. Hooded Justice was the first, then a policeman calling himself Night Owl, then more and more military men and burlesque dancers and all sorts. They called themselves the Minutemen and enjoyed fame and some measure of crime-fighting success for a while before fizzling out as the years went by. Not much else was different from our real world history for a while, besides superhero comics going out of style when so-called actual superheroes were around. Pirate comics became the hip thing instead. Then, in 1959, a watchmaker turned nuclear physicist was disintegrated in a freak accident, but miraculously managed to reassemble himself in a blue, godly, genuinely superhuman form. Dr. Manhattan. His superheroic abilities tipped the scales of the Cold War in America's favour. As the 60s and 70s went on, new so-called superheroes emerged, again all just ordinary humans dressing up. Some of these are in the TV show, several decades older, like Silk Spectre, played by Gene Smart, or Ozymandias, played by Jeremy Irons. Meanwhile, the actual superhero Dr. Manhattan went out and won the Vietnam War for America. The Watergate scandal never went public, and President Nixon won term after term after term after term. Controversy and declining public opinion saw superheroes eventually outlawed, besides those that worked for the government like Dr. Manhattan. The others tended to retire, except the uncompromising Rorschach. Later, in the 80s, a giant 
alien-looking squid materialized in New York, killing millions. The surprise and threat of alien attacks diffused the apocalyptic Cold War tensions, seemingly setting Earth on the track of world peace. But the journal of Rorschach found its way to a hard right-wing newspaper, and its contents detailed a conspiracy implying the alien was a hoax crafted by the retired superhero Ozymandias. Dr. Manhattan also left Earth, saying he was off to create new life elsewhere. Decades later, now in the territory of the TV show, Robert Redford has been president, a liberal one quite different to Nixon, for decades. In this alternate history Earth, there is no internet, no smartphones, but there are forms of reparations known as Redfordations. A group called the Seventh Cavalry wear facsimiles of Rorschach's mask and swear by his journal. They mount attacks on the police, who take to wearing masks in turn, ostensibly just to protect themselves. When both cops and criminals wear masks and act brutally towards each other, what questions are being raised? Even without the masks, what did the kind of tensions that see citizens and cops attack each other tell us? What does the show scenario of these citizens being a fringe white minority, fighting a police force with several black cops such as our main character Angela Abar, what does this mean? Where does this idea of lone wolves enforcing law and order from either side come from? This perceived heroism, and how is it informed by history? Damon Lindelof, the showrunner of TV Watchmen, the man asking these questions, previously wrote the very acclaimed show The Leftovers, and the very watched show Lost. In May 2018, not many months after HBO ordered the show, Lindelof posted a disarmingly candid letter to social media, detailing his history with the comic and intentions with the show. He described how, over the years, he'd been offered the chance to adapt Watchmen for television three times, and after saying no twice, for reasons like... Alan Moore has been consistently explicit in stating that Watchmen was written for a very specific medium, and that medium is comics. Comics that would be ruined should they be translated into moving images. The man offering me the opportunity pauses for a moment, then responds, Who's Alan Moore? Who is Alan Moore? The legendary comics writer, novelist, magician, famously dislikes adaptations of his work for reasons like the fundamental lack of creativity, the reducing and distorting of aspects key to his works, and show business scumminess. The ways he has been manipulated, misrepresented, and mistreated are vast and vile, particularly with Watchmen as a property. So, as a huge admirer of Moore and his work, it's easy to see why Lindelof would feel anxious and like he has to justify himself. But Finally, when offered the opportunity to make Watchmen for the third time, he accepted telling fans, If you are angry that I'm working on Watchmen, I am sorry. You may be thinking, I can't be that sorry or I wouldn't be doing it. I concede the point, but I hope it doesn't invalidate the apology, which I offer with sincerity and respect. Respect. That's second and twice most. I have an immense amount of respect for Alan Moore. He is an extraordinary talent of mythic proportion. Mr. Moore had made it abundantly clear that he doesn't want anyone to adapt his work. To do so is hubris. Worse yet, it's unethical. There are a million ways to rationalize unethical behavior. I could argue that Mr. Moore's partner, the brilliant artist Dave Gibbons, is equally entitled to authorize access to his masterwork, and that he has been kind enough to offer us his blessing to do so. Or I could offer that Mr. Moore cut his veined teeth on the creations of others. Batman, Superman, Captain Britain, Marvel Man, Swamp Thing, and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not to mention the Charlton characters upon whom his Watchmen characters are based, 
So am I not allowed to do the same? If we say time in non-linear terms, like Dr. Manhattan, Moore responded to this sort of line of argument 12 years earlier, in 2006, when pointing out most of those characters Moore worked on he understood as a company's characters, not his, that he was just working on for a while. But with Watchmen, Moore and Gibbons were told, in Moore's own words, It was going to be a title that we owned and that we would determine the destinies of. We thought we controlled and we owned these characters. Now, there is a huge difference between the two of those things. Now, if we zoom back to the relative present, in an interview promoting the show, Lindelof said, Alan Moore is a genius, in my opinion. The greatest writer in a comic medium, and maybe the greatest writer of all time. He's made it very clear that he doesn't want to have any association or affiliation with Watchmen ongoing, and that we not use his name to get people to watch it, which I want to respect. As someone whose entire identity is based around a very complicated relationship with my dad, who I constantly need to prove myself to and never will, Alan Moore is now that surrogate. I do feel like the spirit of Alan Moore is a punk rock spirit, a rebellious spirit, and that if you would tell Alan Moore, a teenage Moore in 85 or 86, you're not allowed to do this because Superman's creator or Swamp Thing's creator doesn't want you to do it, he would say, fuck you, I'm doing it anyway. So I'm channeling the spirit of Alan Moore to tell Alan Moore, fuck you, I'm doing it anyway. That's clickbait, guys. Clickbait. But back to his heartfelt letter, Lindelof resolved that regarding adapting Watchmen. I am not allowed. And yet, I am compelled. I am compelled despite the inevitable pushback and hatred I will understandably receive for taking on this particular project. I once said that if one were a true fan of something, they weren't allowed to hate it. A prominent writer took me to task for such heresy, arguing that just because one was a creator of a show, this did not permit them to pick and choose who was and wasn't a fan of it. The writer went on to win a Pulitzer for television criticism. I went on to get snubbed by the Razzies for Prometheus. As such, I concede this point too. The point is, you love Watchmen. That gives you the right to hate it too. Because no matter what, you're still true fans. But to quote the immortal P.W. Herman, I know you are, but what am I? What am I? I'm a true fan too, and I'm not the only one. What I love most about television is that the finished product is a result not of singular vision, but the collective experience of many brilliant minds. I have the pleasure of sitting in a writer's room each and every day that is as diverse and combative as any I've ever been a part of. In that room, hetero white men like myself are in the minority, and as Watchmen is incorrectly assumed to be solely our domain, understanding its potential through the perspectives of women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community has been as eye-opening as it has been exhilarating. We've committed to doing the same in front of and behind the camera, and every single person involved with this show absolutely adores Watchmen. But in the spirit of complete honesty, we also sort of want to, uh, disrupt it? Except I hate that word because now it's not disruptive anymore. And how can I present as punk rock when I'm now cozy in bed spooning with Warner Brothers, HBO, and DC? Which brings us to the most important part. Maybe the only part that really matters. Our creative intentions. And here's the most fascinating part. We have no desire to adapt the 12 issues Mr. Moore and Mr. Gibbons created 30 years ago. Those issues are sacred ground, and they will not be retread, nor recreated, nor reproduced, nor rebooted. They will, however, be remixed. Because the bass lines in those familiar tracks are just too good, and we'd be fools not to sample them. Those original 12 issues are our Old Testament. When the New Testament came along, it did not erase what came before it. Creation, the Garden of Eden, Abraham and Isaac, the Flood, it all happened. 
And so it will be with Watchmen. The comedian died. Dan and Laurie fell in love. Ozymandias saved the world and Dr. Manhattan left it just after blowing Rorschach to pieces in the bitter cold of Antarctica. Side note. While it's interesting in its own ways, the film adaption of Watchmen really is not a substitute for reading the comic. Questions of the quality of the film aside, there are significant changes, and Lindelof's devotion is clearly to the specifics of the comic rather than the film's broader strokes and own idiosyncrasies. To be clear, Watchmen is canon. Just the way Mr. Moore wrote it, the way Mr. Gibbons drew it, and the way the brilliant John Higgins coloured it. But we are not making a sequel either. To be clear, the show absolutely is set 34 years after the comic, and so by how most of us use the word sequel, it indeed, absolutely, is a sequel. But writers are writers, and can be more persnickety with words than the rest of us. And as for artists, well, Dave Gibbons, artist for the comic, has said of the show, What particularly attracted me to this was what Damon had in mind was not a prequel or a sequel, but an extrapolation. What Alan and I did with Watchmen was we initially said, what if superheroes really existed? What would they be like? And what would the world be like? Which is quite a big question. I think what Damon is asking here is the question if that had happened back in 1986, what would the world be like now? That 30 years is a long enough time that all sorts of things can happen, and you end up a million miles away from the circumstances of the graphic novel, but still with extreme fidelity to it. There isn't anything in this that contradicts the graphic novel. So to me, it is an amplification of it, rather than a dilution. If you're familiar with Watchmen, there's all sorts of stuff that's going to make your little fanboy heart happy. If you're not familiar with it, it stands alone as a really interesting alternate reality story. Lindelof, in his letter to fans, clarified, This story will be set in the world its creators painstakingly built, but in the tradition of the work that inspired it, this new story must be original. It has to vibrate with the seismic unpredictability of its own tectonic plates. It must ask new questions and explore the world through a fresh lens. Most importantly, it must be contemporary. The Old Testament was specific to the 80s of Reagan and Thatcher and Gorbachev. Ours needs to resonate with the frequency of Trump and May and Putin and the horse he rides around on shirtless. Which means the heroes and villains, as if the two are distinguishable, are playing for different stakes entirely. The tone will be fresh and nasty and electric and absurd. Many describe Watchmen as dark, but I've always loved its humor, worshipping at the altar of the genre while simultaneously trolling it. Lindelof goes on to thank the fans and offer an interesting take on Dr. Manhattan before signing off. A wise blue man once said that nothing ever ends. But maybe he wasn't wise. Maybe he was just scared and alone and sad that he would outlive everything and everyone he ever loved. Regarding the writing, Lindelof says the show's nine episodes were painstakingly plotted out as their own story, ending with completeness and resolution. When filming these episodes, crew would run around with copies of the comic, recognising directors in match and reference panels of the comic with their shots. So there's a definite faithfulness to the artistry and technique of the comic in the show. But more fundamental, seems to be the very idea of appropriation. We had to be aware that we as writers were appropriating Watchmen, and it was not ours. Other people had created it, and we were taking it. Sometimes when you appropriate something, you make it about what you thought it was, and the original intention of the artist who made it in the first place becomes secondary to you forcing your will upon it. We thought, on a meta-slash-pretentious level, it would be really interesting in the show if characters had done the same thing to Rorschach. 
the 7th Cavalry... The cult of Rorschach that attacked the police. ...is appropriating Rorschach. He's been dead for 30 years, so he doesn't get to say, you misunderstood me, I wasn't a white supremacist. They decided what he was. We thought that was an interesting idea to embed in the show since we were doing it ourselves. As far as the other big telegraphed theme of the show, the legacy of racism, it's baked into the show's very setting, the Oklahoma City of Tulsa. The superhero genre always feels like it takes place in New York, Gotham City, or Metropolis. And Gotham City and Metropolis are just New York paradigms. So I was like, what does a superhero show look like in Oklahoma? That idea was interesting to me in terms of what it would look and feel like and what kinds of people we would populate it with. In 1921, What's considered the worst incident of racial violence of American history took place there. The Tulsa Race Massacre, the Black Wall Street Massacre, where hundreds died, where hundreds more were injured, thousands were arrested, homes and businesses and neighborhoods burned down, an estimated equivalent of 32 million of today's US dollars worth of property destroyed, some literally by firebombing and aerial assaults from planes. Lindelof thinks looking back to this sort of history is vital for the kind of Watchmen story he is telling. I asked myself, what in 2019 is the equivalent of the nuclear standoff between the Americans and the Russians? And it just felt like it was undeniably race and policing in America. What's creating the big cultural anxiety? For me, it's the anxiety of a reckoning. So that reckoning, that process, the identification of white supremacy as a bad guy in a superhero comic book that could not be defeated, the clan wears masks, but why are they never the villains in the superhero story? Those ideas felt like natural fits for Watchmen. The original is provocative, it's dangerous, it's groundbreaking, it's political, it's unsafe. The idea for the show had to check all those boxes. Lindelof also says, In a traditional superhero movie, the bad guys are fighting aliens, and when they beat the aliens, the aliens go back to their planet and everybody wins. There's no defeating white supremacy, it's not going anywhere, so it felt like it was a pretty formidable foe. As for a central conflict of masked white supremacists fighting masked police, well, way back in 2017, in the earliest days of this adaption, Lindelof said, What we think about superheroes is wrong. I love the Marvel movies, and we saw Justice League this morning, and I'm all for Wonder Woman and Batman, and I grew up on these characters, but we should not trust people who put on masks and say that they were looking out for us. If you hide your face, you were up to no good. Two years later, he said, That connects with what I think is the central core of all Watchmen ideology, which is when you put a mask on, it brings out this part of you that is basically like, fuck all y'all, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Perhaps his views on being anonymous have further developed. Perhaps not. And as he likes to say, the magic of television is that it's spawned from multiple points of view, multiple creative figures. So for all his importance, Lindelof's takes are not capital T, the takes of the show. It's useful to hear the goals, philosophies, and motivations of the creative team, but less useful to look at any sort of apparent thesis statements made before people had a chance to watch the show, especially ones made two years before it even came out. As far as the two masked groups fighting, Lindelof says, If you're asking if police were presented in a heroic light, having just seen the first episode, I think the answer is almost certainly no. And reasserts that, The show is an examination of institutions and culture and politics and things that inform our society. And as far as politics, setting aside the 7th Cavalry with their black and white masks at odds with the moral complications of their war with the police, is Robert Redford having been the president since the 1990s in the Ultimate Watchmen world. Lindelof explains part of that idea is One of the things we're exploring is what would happen if a very well-intentioned white man, a liberal, was president for way too long. So, an evolution, a remix, 
a sequel we don't call a sequel to Watchmen the comic, but realised on HBO with actors like Jeremy Irons and Gene Smart and Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing the music, who were such mega fans of the original comic that they actually approached HBO about doing the score first and started writing the music before the show even began shooting, so the whole thing has been crafted around their sound. We know that we made something that's potentially dangerous and upsetting. We know that we appropriated a beloved graphic novel, and we know that white supremacists appropriating the mask of someone who was construed as a hero in that graphic novel is not going to be loved by everyone, but we still feel like it's interesting. The show in and of itself is a Rorschach test. Everybody's going to see something a bit different based on who they are and what their relationship with Watchmen is. In 1986, Watchmen made such an impact that its squiddly grandeur still haunts the present day. In 2019, let's watch and find out.